0: Welcome. You're listening to Wo Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry Magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. We're here today with Dr. Stacy Coulter, OD, FCOVD. Dr. Coulter is a professor at Nova Southeastern University College of Optometry. And she did her residency in pediatrics, and obviously she teaches pediatrics and binocular vision. Uh, Dr. Coulter, how did your interest in pediatrics come about?
1: Well, I was always interested in working with kids as patients. I think even as someone applying to optometry school, um, I was sort of curious, well, like, how would you see an infant or a toddler or a preschooler? Um, and how the exam process would work. Um, I think when I went through optometry school and I took courses and did clinical training in the area, um, one of the things that impressed me is in pediatrics, um, we can actually actually correct or reverse um, many of the vision problems, um, even some of the ocular health problems, um, because we are, You know, time is on our side, early intervention, and a lot of kids um, are very healthy. So if we can catch the kind of vision problems and congenital problems early, um, we can get rid of them. And so that was really appealing as well. Um, And then also the fact that in pediatrics we can make such a big difference, not just just in the individual's vision, but in their development and, you know, academic pursuits and even, you know, eventually what kind of career they might have as an adult. So I, th- I thought that was very powerful. That is powerful. And
0: how did you become comfortable with small children? Because I'm guessing you see some very young
1: children. I, yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously that's kind of the, hopefully clinical training, as you see, I was privileged to do a residency at, um, PCO, which is now Salus. And I worked with some outstanding clinicians, uh, during that year. And so I got to kind of see how they work with kids who had everything from, you know, amblyopia, lazy eye, eye strabismus, and then even, you know, very serious conditions like HIV, um, with ocular manifestations. I, I, I got to observe with them and collaborate with them. And that was a very positive uh, experience. And then um, when I continued my career coming to Nova Southeastern University in South Florida, um, I had a lot of experience seeing patients directly as well as working with students and then eventually residents. And I think that you do over time um, have the opportunity to get better as well. So it was sort of an ongoing process.
0: So what does a practitioner need, um, both in terms of clinical skills and personality skills and even physical space to to be able to do a good job with a a range of children?
1: Well, someone told me very early, actually during my residency, that people who saw kids had to be very good clinicians because they had to be fast and they had to be um, able to go by their clinical findings when they weren't necessarily getting a response from a child um, that they needed to do a test. So you know, for a kid who's very young, like an infant or a toddler, or even an older kid who is not necessarily giving you reliable information, it their findings needed to be highly accurate. Um, and then in addition, I have always thought that pediatric is, um, like I was told anesthesiology is, is, you know, you have a window of time in which you can go in and get findings on the patient. And then at a certain point it's over. It doesn't matter what you do. The patient is just done. So I think, um, clinical ability is very important and accurate clinical skills. And then I think you have to have some either, you know, innate knack for talking and interacting with kids and with their parents, because many kids' um, parents are going to be the person who provides the history as well as who um, brings the kid to the exam and um, facilitates the management. Uh, some people are, are just naturally very good at that. I think, again, training and experience can also be helpful um, in terms of getting good compliance, and meeting your patient's needs. Now, do
0: most of the pediatric uh, practitioners that you know, or even, you know, as you're talking to, to students and residents about this, is it separate from the primary care business? Can it be seamlessly not, integrated? Not
1: always. I mean, I, I think there's lots of opportunities for um, practitioners that want to do both. Um, I think for people, practitioners who want to do kids that they're usually going to have even lots of opportunity to do that. So it's not uncommon that someone goes to a practice and they're seeing adults and they're doing, um, contact lenses and, you know, they're doing disease within that practice, but they have, they like, or they have kind of an affinity to seeing kids and then that, part of their practice starts to expand. Mm-hmm. And then over time they're seeing more and more kids and less and less adults. I have, you know, seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Although there certainly are practices where people like the mix and they see plenty of kids as well as adults who have other conditions. Either way, because there are like practitioners that are not as interested in seeing kids, I think that there it leaves a lot of opportunity for those who who like it and um, are good at it.
0: So when there's a a family with a child who has come into the uh, reception area, is that kind of a a priority patient to get back there?
1: Um, Yes. Um, And I would say some kids might be even more of a priority than others. Kids that are very little, um, infants, toddlers, maybe preschoolers, um, kids that have other things going on. Again, the more time that you spend out in the waiting room that may detract from how much information or testing you get done back in the exam room. Mm-hmm. So um, in a perfect situation, obviously you want to start the exam as soon as possible. Um, if, if, if that's not always possible, then having um, some sort of uh, transition place where they can be um, or something to get them into the exam might be you know helpful as well although the one thing you want to avoid is that the child sits down and waits and now gets really invested in, you know, pick watching a video, working on their iPad, and you have to take them off of that to do the exam. You definitely would want to avoid that situation.
0: Right. So do, do you find that um, there's particularly good technology that you use with kids? Um,
1: I think, yes. Um, interestingly enough, I mean, there are technology in terms of, um, you know, like refraction, like auto refraction, um, and screeners, those technologies are not 100% accurate, but they might be helpful with certain certain cases, they might point you in a general direction, Um, they might enable you to get part of the information that you need. I actually think the um, the technologies that may be even more exciting right now are some of the um, imaging technologies that are coming out, that are out for adults. So where, for example, like a visual field, we, we still, you know, it can be tough to get a visual field on a child who needs one who's um, uh, younger than eight years old. Um, we now can do like OCT. We have other digital imaging technologies that we can do very quickly and even with very young children and get some information in terms of looking at um, ocular disease conditions. So uh, I, think, I think technology is going to be increasingly important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the refraction side will continue to develop, although it certainly doesn't replace you know, traditional um, retinoscopy and other types of testing. Um, But the uh, ocular disease technologies, I think are, I I find when I'm in clinic, I use those more and more.
0: That's interesting. And when you talk about this too, it it makes me think of, you know, kind of the um, conversations going on now that there are more and more refractive exam technologies that are available online and things like that. But what you're talking about with these children, especially ones with amblyopia and strabismus and and other conditions, there's, there's no technology that will let the parent help these kids at home.
1: No, there really isn't. And even like, I mean, even if they, like we have, um, Patients who come in and they have like their vision screening results and sometimes they even say, well, we, you know, we think that the refractive error is this, but most of those, even the best technologies, they're, they're not always, I mean, they don't, they're not accurate enough to replace an exam. Mm Um, and, and then even things looking for, I mean, we have great technologies. Now we have like, there's there's like the spot screener, which is wonderful for screening and the kid can even move around and it has lights and it literally has, you know, sounds and, you know, it's interesting and you can get a reading on it, which makes it really useful, but it's not accurate enough to replace an exam. So I think there's still clearly, even though we, do know that we have technology coming into, um, our, our space, I mean, I think that there's certain parts of, um, pediatric vision practice. It, it cannot. One point that
0: you, you made too, is, is it's, there's already some, um, differences in approach when you're dealing with any children, but when you're dealing with nonverbal children, right. That becomes even more pronounced.
1: Right. And in fact, um, you know, uh, children, individuals with developmental disabilities are a not insignificant part of the population. Um, We know from lots, looking at lots of publications and even medical literature that they're often, uh, for many conditions, are even at increased risk for having vision and ocular health problems. So they... You know, they're more likely to have something that needs to be addressed. And we actually, you know, one of the areas of agreement in in optometrists and ophthalmologists looking at recommendations for care is that group. um, You know, there's recommendations for screening, but we clearly agree with medicine that these are the kids who have neurodevelopmental disorders. They need to, you know, not rely on screenings. They need to start with a comprehensive exam. and so they may very well be in a practice needing to be seen. And I, I know when I talk to some of my colleagues that are in um, optometrist ophthalmology co-practices, so it, it's a, it may be a group practice with um, half optometrist and half ophthalmologist, and many times the optometrists are actually seeing some of these more complex patients because they can manage many of the conditions. Most of the conditions, other than strabismus surgery or, you know, some ocular disease, a few ocular disease conditions, most can be um, fully managed with optometric management. And they may need more chair time and expertise, and optometrists are certainly able, you know, to provide that.
0: That's great. Dr. Coulter, do you have uh, a particular success story that that stays with you or the, 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 the patient who really tugged at your heartstrings?
1: I, you know, I've had, I've had so many over my career, um, from kids who came in because they had, um, poor performance. And for example, kids who came in poor performance in school. I remember one child I had years ago and, uh, the, 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 father was a physician, the mother was professional, and the child was in the gifted program. And the father who was a physician asked me to see the child, because the child was supposed to be in the gifted program. But the parents were thinking, they need to pull them from the gifted program, because on the report card in every area, it says, okay, uh, Susie needs to try harder. That was all of the the, the grades mm-hmm. that the um, you know, grades were so so, and those were the comments from the te- for the teacher. And so the parents were like, "Well, maybe this isn't the right fit." And we diagnosed a vision problem, um, which I think was accommodative and binocular, not strabismus or eye turn. More, you know, more common than 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 even those. Mm-hmm. And we went and treated it with classes, appropriate classes in vision therapy. And, you know, within a matter of months, the child was not just making outstanding grades, but over winter break had now done all of their assigned projects and, um, and work like months in advance. I mean, there was just such a dramatic turnaround from fixing the vision problem. Um, yeah, I've, I've had special needs patients where they had marked, um, changes in behavior and. Um, man, man, able to manage things just from having, getting the right refractive error correction. So I, I to this day, I continue to think that pediatrics has a lot of, of power to it, that you can really make a difference there, pediatric optometry. The other thing I see is, I mean, if for optometrists who want to, you know, build a, a primary care practice is, you know, once you establish that strong relationship with the patient and you have the confidence of the, of the parent because you've successfully treated um, the child's vision or ocular health condition, oftentimes the uh, parent then may be even more coming to you, interested in coming to you as, as another patient. So it's not uncommon once you get a child that you get the other family members as well. So you know, pediatric optometry continues to be a big um, help in terms of practice building.
0: So if you want to be, if you want to draw more pediatric patients to your practice, what what are some things perhaps that you should be doing and also what should you not be doing?
1: Um, obviously, in this day and age, I think you need to have some sort of social media presence because if you think about who you're um, You know, who's going to be making that decision to come to you is probably going to be a parent, which means most of them are probably going to be in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, maybe. But they're going to be more likely to be um, from generations that are used to going online, um, going to other social media in terms of getting information about practices. So I think having a a social media practice uh, presence is important. Um, and then how you want to define kind of the things that you do with kids in your practice, um, whether it's just primary care, whether you offer, you know, specialized, um, services in vision therapy or uh, management of, uh, progressive myopia or some other areas, you definitely would want to highlight that, um, depending on how much of, you know, how aggressive you want to go after pediatrics, um, I think working on having a referral network um, establishing that is, is very, very helpful Um, for me. You know, over time, many of my patients now are, have actually been referred in by someone who is wondering about a kid having a particular um, type of vision problem. So, you know, if you're in an area getting out and meeting um, other uh, people who might work in say school vision screenings, Mm um parent groups, uh therapists who are working with kids who have um uh, other kinds of needs, needs, you know, speech therapy or occupational therapy can be um really helpful and um kind of publicizing uh the work you do and the importance that you do because there's still a lot of folks who um parents who think, well, I take my kid to the pediatrician every year, isn't that enough? They're checking for everything there. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, um, using social media as well as, um, direct contact or meeting with groups to kind of, um, differentiate your practice and, um, inform people of why pediatric vision care is so important are, are all, you know, kind of strategies that you can, that you can use. Um, also I think it's important in the pediatrics that you've got to make sure your dispensary also reflects that. So, right. um, you know, if you do a great exam, I mean, I like, my best case scenario is the parent buys the glasses for the kids at my practice, because then I can really check and say, okay, you know, is the power right? You know, if they have a bifocal, is it in the right place? Do the frame fit? You know, I I feel like I have the most control quality control Mm -hmm. over what the child's going to actually be wearing. But then that means you need to have like a decent frame, decent selection in your dispensary, um, so that you can uh, meet the needs of what Parents are looking for, and the kids' frames are so cute these days. Yeah, they're great choices. You know, they really they're
0: wonderful. Um, and is, is there is there a caution though? I mean, is there something that you know you just can't jump in and start doing
1: today? I would hope the profession has worked really hard um, to kind of set a standard where. Optometrists graduating optometry school today are supposed to be comfortable with um, very young children, infants, toddlers, preschoolers. We've worked really hard over the years to teach optometry students and practicing optometrists those skills and that information. Mm -hmm. Um, There could be, you know, cases that are more complex in terms of um, kids that have particular medical conditions or particular, you know, so, uh, to, um, systemic conditions in terms of developmental delays or other, um, other, you know, co uh, morbidities that are sort of going along with that, where you might want to get more experience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I could see that you might want to get more training in turn. So if you want to do like um, certain pediatric contact lenses for example that might be an area where you need to kind of fill in beyond what you learned in um, optometry school not to say that you couldn't do routine fits but if you want to do um, infant um, a fakes or, or other types of more involved contact lens fits then you might need to get some advanced training so um, certainly vision therapy I have seen optometrists who've been out for a while decide you know seven ten years out that they want to Um, put more of a focus on on vision therapy in their practice, and then they would go back and take a more intensive course to get their skills up.
0: So what are the special considerations we need to to look at with the special needs population?
1: Well, I think understanding that um, many of these patients are at an increased risk for having um, vision and, and ocular disease problems um, and that includes things as basically as like uh, higher refractive errors, um, as well as being at risk for amblyopia and strabismus. Um, I think having a protocol or being able to do an exam that is less dependent on a child's subjective response, um, being able to look at kids' uh, behaviors or kind of the observations of parents and um, kind of At least test and probe if some of that might be linked to visual problems that have not yet been diagnosed, I think is really important. And then, after you've um, come up with a diagnosis and a management, um, explaining that to the parents as well as making sure that the other members of that child's management team, which could include their teacher, their therapist, you know, their occupational therapist, other folks that they're working with also are kind of aware of what's going on with vision. I think all of those are really important things and they have huge impact, um, you know, not just for visual acuity, but for all sorts of um, areas in terms of kids learning and making progress in their particular um, educational programs.
0: And you develop this network just by being a part of the, the care team
1: definitely I mean if you I, I I constantly have um former students that are now alumni out in different you know areas of the country and now they're you know they're on the, the they're in the trenches actually getting started in terms of getting their practices going and you know I have had at least two or three former students or residents this year say dr. Coulter you know I saw this child who had I don't know, down syndrome, autism, some you know something going in and by the end of the exam the parent was in tears. They were so happy. The child had never had an exam like this before. Oh. Um then that parent goes back to the other parents that they know and the other, you know, therapists and teachers that they're working with and you start to see just a um groundswell of um you know, patients seeking care. So um, I, I, I think, you know, what exactly that community will be, maybe dependent on where you're practicing as well as what, you know, what's the nature, age and condition of that, you know, these particular patients. But I think that's really a really common way for, um, word of mouth to kind of, um, get out there, but they've, you know, quickly differentiated themselves and are, you know, starting to get a, a following.
0: Dr. Coulter, it's been such a pleasure to have you on W.O. Voices. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at Online at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WL Magazine or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.